It's the rest is history. Hello. I'm Frank Skinner and welcome to the show. Oscar Wilde said anybody can make history, only a great man can write it. Which of course completely ignores all the great women who write it. My own partner, for example, who, okay, doesn't actually write history, but rewrites history on a regular basis. <laughs> One great woman who writes history is our own Professor Kate Williams. Kate, who's sitting cross-legged at your feet tonight? <laughs> well, Frank, our marvellous guests tonight are Josie Long and Kevin Eldon. So, uh, Kevin and Josie, what would you describe as your historic credentials? Do you, uh, do you have...? Um... Um, I've, I've got an A-level in history and what? I got a grade A. That? Whoa! Thank you. Thank you so much. What about you, Kevin? Well, I mean, you said with, you know, with regards to this programme that uh, you like history, mm. but you don't know much about it. Yes. Oh, I don't know much about history and I don't like it. Oh. Um, <laughs> I, I wanted to come on, the rest is geography. <laughs> OK. Now it's that point in the show when we look at legends and see if they have any basis in truth. In a round that I call allegedly. <laughs> <laughs> now, in true legend tradition, if you can have true legend tradition, I'm a bit vague on this one. I went to an exhibition, and I can't remember where, and I saw either the replica or the genuine Drake's drum. And the accompanying explanation said that if the country was in peril, the drum would sound and Sir Francis Drake would come back and rescue us. Feasible? <laughs> Have you ever heard of Drake's drum? No. It's not like a haunted drum that would hit itself, is it? Someone would be employed. No, I think Ringo Starr is on a 1,000 a year retainer. <laughs> in times of trouble, he'll be drafted. <laughs> yeah, where is it? <laughs> Come on, Francis, haven't got all day. <laughs> no, so, um, I don't know who's going to sound it. I imagine it's sort of like the bat signal. <laughs> so you bang it, and wherever um, Francis Drake is, he will, he will hear it and, and he will come. What, just on his own? <laughs> so, but, in, but did he come back in corporeal form or as a really scary ghost? Well, it was, like, it was quite a small card with the information on, so it didn't really go into his, uh, what right. form he'd come back in. Well, I don't know what he'd do, you know, he'd just be so behind and everything, wouldn't he? <laughs> <laughs> oh, Jay, he'd be like, oh, so hang on, so that's a telephone... Oh, I don't know what a telephone is, you're after. Yeah, <laughs> pandemonium. I always, get, um, I always get Drake and Raleigh mixed up. Well, Drake oh, was yeah. basically the, the... He was the golden boy. Right. And, and Raleigh, it started well and ended badly. I think that's the general well, thing. I once mounted a duck thinking it was my bike... Um, I, I just get confused by it. So, were they at the same time? Were they, <laughs> were they, did, were they about the Can same time? Can we have a pause while the audience worked that out? <laughs> it's very so fine. Good. It's a very fine joke. Um, they were about the same time, yeah. Right. But um, I mean, I'm not suggesting that Francis Drake is actually going to come back, but I would like to know if that was his drum if it is actually the drum from, I think, the Golden Hind was his ship, and how the legend came about. And I think I know a woman who might have the answer to these questions. Professor Kate, what do you know about Drake's drum? I don't think you saw the real thing, Frank. When did you see it? I saw it about... Oh, it's probably been about ten years ago. That was the replica. So the real one is really fragile, so it's kept in this climate-controlled store on display in Drake's old home of Buckland Abbey in Devon, so that's a copy. And it is supposed to beat itself. 
So basically, oh, really? when we are in extreme danger, this drum is going to bash itself and Drake is going to come back and it's save not, it's us. It's not a member of Opus Dei, is it? <laughs> Classic joke. <laughs> but it, it is his drum from the Golden Hind. No, it's not his drum, we don't think. It's a snare drum that he's said to have taken with him when he circumnavigated the world between 1577 and 1580. So, but we don't know that he definitely did. So it wasn't with him when he went to fight the Spanish Armada, and we don't know if it was definitely with him. So there's no guarantee that it is actually Drake's drum. Can I say, so what the conclusion of all this is, there's a replica of a drum... That's it, right? Well, no, there is. There is yeah. also, the real drum is, is it exists, but it's not on um, public display. But there's a real drum, but he might, may never have seen it, used it, known about it. Got it in one, Josie. You know what, Josie? It's, it's people like you that ruin history. <laughs> <laughs> OK, so uh, where did the tradition come then about he would come and save us if, it was, if the drum was sounded? Well, the first time we ever heard of it was in the 19th century. Those Victorians. It's amazing how many very, very, very old traditions started in the 19th century. Because yeah. the Victorians didn't mind making stuff up, did they? Things like the, the arrow and the eye for uh, Harold was, was added in the 19th century. Is that I right? So he did, he did fight the Spanish Armada. We've got that. That's true. He did circumnavigate the globe. Did he play bowls before he fought the... You know, the story was the, the Armada getting closer and closer. Bowls. He says, I'll just finish this game of yeah. bowls. That sounds like, let me guess, it was made up in the 19th century. <laughs> well, no. It was printed 37 years later. So 37 years after the Armada. So pretty contemporaneous, but we, there's no guarantee that he was. Yeah, was there's it on no the sports evidence. pages, the box? <laughs> <laughs> but, OK, so that might be... But why make that up? What do you gain from that legend? It's, it just seems neater, doesn't it? It just seems... It just shows a bit of sort of English sans-foir. I've used a French word to describe something very English, which is quite ironic. But, um, no, it just it makes me look like Mr Cool, doesn't it? Yeah, let me just finish... Yeah, bowls. bowls. before I have my Spanish on it. <laughs> it's then... a cool pastime. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Can I just give one fact on Drake? One yes, you can. One fact is that he actually was the vice-admiral against the Spanish Armada, so he was number two, not number one. Really? Mm. Who was number one? Lord Howard of Effingham. Well, well, I've never heard of that man, and he was the main man. So Why what, isn't he famous? Well, Francis Drake gets to be the national hero because he's already very popular because he circumnavigated the globe and because he was really Elizabeth's favourite. He gave her all this money. He creates this incredible mythology of the warrior and the gentleman. And poor old Lord Howard, who's actually the one calling the shots, just gets forgotten. Didn't Drake just continually come back with... Hordes and hordes of treasure and gold, and he just he was really sort of like crawly bumlick. He'd come back and say, Here are your majesty, look, here, look at these huge great chests. You are so right, Kevin, and she was so easily won. You bring her gold, she says, My goodness, you're my favourite. How shallow. <laughs> Do you want the times when apparently it's hit itself? Oh, it has hit itself. Apparently so. Yeah. What first, number one, when the Mayflower left Plymouth for America in 1620, it the, hit itself. The drum hit itself. Apparently so. Number two, when Admiral Lord Nelson was made a freeman of Plymouth. Yeah. <laughs> Is that because Drake thinks I'm Mr Plymouth? <laughs> Number three, when Napoleon was brought into Plymouth Harbour as a prisoner. Why, so why didn't he appear when the drum beat itself? Ah, that's the question. Maybe he was playing bowls. Maybe he's dead. Did it sound... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, sometimes the obvious answer is that... <laughs> 
Some of you may remember when Edvard Munch's painting, The Scream, got stolen. Thieves removed the canvas, leaving behind just the frame and glass. What's brilliant about that is that when the attendant discovered the screen was missing, his reflection formed an almost perfect replacement. <laughs> but that was 20 years ago. It feels like people have stopped stealing iconic things. I yearn for the audacious heists of yesteryear, some of which we will be discussing in this round I call heistery. <laughs> so what would you say was the big heist of history? Well, the only one I know about is a man who tried to steal the crown jewels. Is this Captain Blood? Yes! Captain yes, Blood. that's... He's See, incredible! Yes. What a brilliant name, Captain Blood. And he wasn't even a real captain, he just decided he was a captain. Well, he was probably called something like Brian Blood, <laughs> and he thought, oh, I can't, that's spoiling it. So he, so he took on that title, because Captain Blood just sounds like the coolest name ever. Yeah. So what do you know about him? So he tried to kidnap the person who was ruling Ireland. It was sort of in the, vaguely in the Civil War time... Okay. But he didn't succeed. And then he switched allegiances in the Civil War. Like, he started out fighting for the king, and then obviously he saw it was on the turn, so he was like, no, I changed my mind. And then, when Charles II was on the throne, he came back to the UK, pretended to be a priest, went in to look at the crown jewels, befriended the elderly man who was the guard of the crown jewels, and then one day just nicked them, tried to get the crown out, but he couldn't because it was too bulky, so he used a mallet to squash it down and shove oh, it into his costume and ran off. And he did get caught, but when he got caught, he was like, you must admit it was audacious. I tried to steal a crown. <laughs> If I was going to steal the crown, I would replace it with one of those crowns you get in Christmas crackers <laughs> and leave it there. Just like, That'd be so amazing. I'm really glad that we've got that. Any other heists? I just think, I think there was a, he did get involved in a Captain Blood general knowledge competition with Sir Walter Raleigh, but he, he lost. Just goes to show that blood is thicker than Walter. <laughs> <laughs> about the, uh, the screen, if you nick the screen, I mean, I, how do you get rid of that? How are you going to sell that on? I mean, it's kind of somewhat... Well, you imagine it, showing it to someone down the pub and <laughs> spilling their pint? That would just be so terrifying. I think that, that they always talk... Um, any, any art treasure that gets stolen, people always say, well, who on earth would... You know, you couldn't get rid of that. But the idea is, I think, that there are these private collectors who actually thrive on the idea that they've got it to themselves. They don't want to share it with the rest of the world. It's just theirs. Right. I've had TV series like that. And <laughs> <laughs> there are loads of works of art that have been stolen and are currently, you know, whereabouts unknown. There's only one person who'll know the answer to that. First of all, Kate, Captain Blood, are we, are we there? You're there. And he had the audacious plan in 1671 of stealing the crown jewels. Now, they're not quite as glamorous as they had been because basically Oliver Cromwell melted them all down <laughs> and we had the spoon and the ample, that's what he kept. And so the what? Went, the spoon and the ample. Oh. So not very big, pub. not very big. And when yeah. Charles II came to the throne in 1660, he immediately commissioned some brand new jewels. Okay. <laughs> Are the thefts? Well, well, you'd know this as a football man. The um, the World Cup, the Jules Rimet. Yes. Uh, now that got stolen. I'm not sure. 1966. Six. 1966. Mm. And then it was. We won it. It wasn't stolen. No, it was stolen it. just before. <laughs> yeah. Just before we won it, it was stolen. Yeah. Uh, no, yeah, it was. At, they had it on display at a stamp collecting exhibition, exhibition, and then it was found under some bushes by a dog called Pickles. Yeah, <laughs> and 
<laughs> if it happened now, you'd absolutely assume that someone from FIFA had sold it. <laughs> <laughs> who stole it again? Did, did they I don't think they ever out? found out who stole it. I know. You oh. know. The thief's real name was Edward Betchley, and he was a 46-year-old soldier, and he had one previous conviction for receiving tins of stolen corned beef. Mm. <laughs> and so he stole it, and then he sent a message to the FA chairman saying, there'll be a parcel at Chelsea Football Club tomorrow, follow the instructions. And they got this parcel, and the ransom note demanded 15,000 in £5 and £1 notes. And he agreed to a rendezvous in Battersea Park, but then the police turned up and he tried to run away, but they caught him. The dog Pickles found it under a hedge and the owner got a £3,000 reward and he bought a house. I think Pickles found it because it smelt of corned beef. <laughs> That's what it is. <laughs> I like that he got a £3,000 reward and then he bought a house. Yes. Such a 1960s story, isn't it? In London he bought a house, did he? <laughs> Incredible. In Battersea as well. That's pretty amazing. And also, there used to be a quiz question when I was a, a kid that people always used to ask, who won the FA Cup and lost it in the same year? And the answer was Aston Villa, because they won the FA Cup, they put it on, uh, on show in a, in a Birmingham jeweller's window and someone stole it. And I don't think it was ever got back. And Aston Villa were fined £25 for losing it. <laughs> That's like a monopoly thing. They had to sell their house. <laughs> so, as you say, Frank, they put it on display, and even though a £10 reward was offered to all when, Birmingham. When was it? When did they win it? Turn of the century, was it? 1895. Okay. okay. So, 1895, oh. £10, pretty good for 1895, and no one came forward. And it was in 1958, Harry Burge, who was 83 by that point, but he was a petty criminal in Birmingham, he said he'd nicked it and melted it down to make fake coins. Oh, but it was Billy... melted down. I always assumed it would be on some Brommie's mantelpiece <laughs> with, a, with a safety pin and a button and some foreign coins. <laughs> and now the round I call Not All Bad. I recently discovered that the non-alcoholic version of the cocktail Sex on the Beach is called... Safe sex on the beach. <laughs> it is true. As an alcoholic Roman Catholic, both drinks seem wrong to me. <laughs> Bringing it back to history, I was recently at the Savoy and my friend ordered a Bloody Mary and I ordered a Virgin Mary. She was sniffy about the lack of alcohol in my drink. I pointed out that in any cocktail top trumps, British monarch loses to mother of God. <laughs> All true. Now, Bloody Mary, she sounds a bit of a violent type, but was she all bad? Do you know anything at all about uh, Bloody Mary? Oh, I know some stuff about her. OK, what do you know? Well, so she was, before Queen Elizabeth I, was her younger sister, and they were all children of Henry VIII. OK. Henry VIII had a son, Edward VI, who was very sickly and came to the throne very young. Edward the Sickly should have been called. Damn straight. <laughs> he died really young. Oh, God, you've only just introduced us to him. <laughs> <laughs> and then after he died, he was Protestant, but after he died, Mary I came to the throne. Mm. But she was older and she was Catholic. I don't know how that works or why. And she was furious at the fact that there were Protestants. So she, she was very notorious for sort of putting everyone to the stake, all the Protestants to the stake. OK, so not all bad. 
So Bloody Mary is the same as the Mary Queen of Scots? Oh, no. No, no, that's a different no one. too many Marys. <laughs> there's, and, so there's Mary Queen of Scots. No, that's why they called it Mary England. <laughs> <laughs> and there's Lady Jane Grey, who was queen for, like, literally six days or something, and then get rid of her. Then Elizabeth, but Elizabeth came to the throne after Mary. Oh, this is She fun. was as bloody as Bloody Mary, but the other way round. And so everyone was like, brilliant Queen Elizabeth. So they were both terrifying killers, I think. So Mary, <laughs> Mary killed a lot of Protestants, and then Elizabeth came on the throne and killed, killed a lot, lot of Catholics. Catholics. Yeah. The argument being they started it. <laughs> so what we know is that she's an, another daughter of Henry VIII, and she was Catholic even though Henry was Protestant. So sounds like she married someone Catholic. King Henry VIII was responsible for breaking the English church away from Catholicism. Yes. And he only did it for political reasons, not for religious reasons, because he wanted to marry, I think, Catherine, and the Pope wouldn't give him a divorce. So he said, right, OK, then I'm going to take I the think church. also financial reasons as well, because he got to dissolve all the monasteries and take their money. His first wife is Catherine of Aragon. That means that Mary's the oldest and she's from that. Aragon is in Spain, so she's a Catholic. Then Jane Seymour is the, one, is the mother of the boy. And I guess... I don't know who Elizabeth's mother was. Maybe the midwife, Anne Boleyn? But she was... You know, he didn't like her because he beheaded her. Yes. He had her head right off. <laughs> Just had it right off. Yeah. It's a mistake, that, because we've all thought about doing that to our partners. <laughs> yeah. But then the next day, you think, oh, why did I think that? He must have woke up and thought, oh, God. Oh, no, well, too much power, you see. But it, it, so he made himself the head of the Church of England, which means that he was able to say what jams were on sale at Village <laughs> Fates, when the jumble sales would be. And I actually think... We'd, so we've got him to thank for Vickers, really, without which most 1970s sitcoms wouldn't have anyone to be <laughs> outraged about something mildly sexual. Yeah, you're quite right. Thank um, God for that. Yeah. You'd have to have parties that were just Antarps parties. Yes. <laughs> I have long been looking for a bright side to the Reformation, and now you, <laughs> you have found it. OK, so, look, with, there's lots there. You, you've both... Um, I think we've, we've sort of got a picture... Mary, Catholic queen. For how long do we think Josie about? I think she was only queen for maybe about less than ten years, maybe about eight years. Okay. And then Queen Elizabeth just smashed it out of the park and she yes. was there for decades. <laughs> yes. So how, how many facts have we actually come across here, Kate? This is pretty impressive. We've got quite a lot of facts. Mary didn't reign for very long. She actually reigned for five years. So you were quite close with eight. She reigned for five years. And as you say, she had this short reign and then Elizabeth came on and smashed it out of the park. So, so she, she burns or executes 283 people, which is a lot. Elizabeth does 30. And Edward, Edward VI, who goes down in history as rather uncontroversial, 5,500 people die under him because of the prayer book rebellion, in which they, they rebelled against the prayer book, the government put down the rebellion. So more people died from the West Country under the prayer book rebellion than did in World War I. So he was pretty tough, but we forget that. Well, we wait, all... so how come Bloody Mary gets to be? For, because she's a Catholic burning Protestants, and all the people who write history after that are Protestants. Uh, so they're saying, what a bad girl. So Mary did good stuff as well. She did pretty good stuff, but she was, you know, she wasn't lucky. Bad harvests. It's interesting because what she failed on big time was what her half sister also failed on was having an heir. But we we let Elizabeth off the hook. We say, oh, never mind. He didn't have a child. Okay. So 
Henry VIII, as you say, broke from the Church of Rome, partly to dissolve the monasteries, partly to marry Anne Boleyn and to bring the country to Protestantism. Anne Boleyn, he thought she was having a son, she had a daughter, Elizabeth. But unfortunately, you know, he thought he might be really sad after he cut off Anne Boleyn's head. Mm. He wasn't. He was already engaged to the next one. So, so basically, the morning that Anne Boleyn was executed, he got engaged to Jane Seymour. So he moved on fast. Do you wow. think he told the new wife? That was what was happening. Yeah, well, she knew she would, she'd been Anne Boleyn's lady-in-waiting, so she knew what was going on. Never trust your friends, eh? Never it's, trust them. I find it's hard to keep the beheading of an ex from a girlfriend. <laughs> <laughs> people, people talk. <laughs> OK. Tremendous news. I won £25 on my premium bonds this week. I enjoyed the image of Ernie hand-picking my numbers. Ernie, I hear you ask, who's that? Well, it's the electronic random number indicating equipment, of course. I miss the days when computers had names, when Deep Blue beat Gary Kasparov at chess. We'll probably discover more computers with names in the round a Frenchman might call nomputers. <laughs> so, are you, are you aware of Ernie? No. I, no, I know that premium bonds are like a precursor to the lottery and more people seem to win. I still have premium bonds. I do as well, yeah. yeah. there's something yeah, fantastically yeah. English about them. And so they were drawn by this thing called Ernie. Is Ernie still working? Well, Is I it? have no idea. We'll find out, I'm hoping, in a minute. Mm. But Ernie, I always imagine... I never saw a picture, but I imagine that the knobs and dials formed a sort of a smiley face <laughs> on Ernie. <laughs> He'd be a 50s computer, wouldn't he? Was it when they started...? I, well, I remember him as a kid, so that would be the 60s, but he might well have been about then. Probably had some wooden components. Oh, I hope so. <laughs> so what about, um, before we get on to Kasparov and others, what about Ernie? Ernie, as you say, he's this marvellous thing that picked the premium bonds, and we do still have one, but it's not the same. We've got Ernie Four, who was brought into service in 2004, but the old one, uh, he generated 2,000 numbers an hour, and he was the size of a van. And so <laughs> of a what? It's a bit personal, the size of a van. <laughs> and he didn't have a smiley face. He didn't have a smiley so face. That just reminded me of something. I worked with Professor Richard Dawkins... And he showed me this thing on the internet, and it's him reading abusive letters oh, yeah. as if they were, um, as if it was a lovely book he'd been given. And one of them calls him, you know, a, a monster and the, the son of Lucifer and all that. And it says, I hope you get run over by a church van. <laughs> <laughs> what is that? <laughs> I like the idea that, that when England is in peril, that. Um, Ernie will one. kick into action <laughs> and uh, he will actually operate our defence system by hacking the Minister of Defence computer. What would we have to hit to call Ernie back? We'd have to hit some kind of drum. Drake, maybe it's Drake's drum. Drake's drum would bring Ernie back. <laughs> That'd be really disappointing. <laughs> we must save the country, save the drum. What's that? What's that a van? <laughs> Look, it's, got, it's the same size as a van, but it's, it has a numerical air. <laughs> Wait a second, Rick, it's, it's saying something. It'll probably be something really important. Oh, no, 53. 
So Ernie's very interesting because it was built by this gentleman called Tommy Flowers that really no one's ever oh, heard of. the 50s. Of. <laughs> Tommy Flowers is Tommy the most famous name. Tommy Flowers. Tommy Flowers. and no window cleaning. really <laughs> ever heard of him because he, we could say he was the creator of the modern computer, but he wasn't credited. And while he was working in the post office in the 1930s, he began to think, we could use electronics in the telephone exchange. And then he was sent off to Bletchley Park during World War II and started making machines. He did it all by himself at his own expense. And in 1943, he created the first Colossus computer. And they called it Colossus because, like Ernie, it was gigantic. It was even bigger than a van. So he had this great How big... How big Colossus. is a van? <laughs> well, a church van or not? <laughs> I'm thinking a Luton. A Luton? Oh, yeah, it's probably about 20 it was, feet. It was one it? tonne. Was about the size of a bedroom, so it's a large computer. Again, a bedroom is a is an irregular unit of measurement. <laughs> <laughs> so Alan Turing realised it was a genius idea, and by the end of the war, they had ten of these colossal things. But then, with the end of the war, they thought, "What's the point of all these machines?" So they got rid of them. They destroyed eight of them, and. The other two went to GCHQ and kept going till the 1960s. And they gave Flowers a £1,000, and that's all he got. And he died in 1998, and we never remember him as the first builder of the computer. No, and Tommy yet he was. Flowers. Poor Tommy. Brilliant. And thanks to him that we have these marvellous computers, including Ernie. And Deep Blue, as you were saying. Yeah, do you remember the Deep Blue? It's a massive story. Sounds like a dodgy film. What, what was no, the Deep Blue? Gary <laughs> Kasparov, who at the time was like the greatest chess player on the planet... He played against... You know, you get those little chess computers. He played against this thing. And, it's like I say, it had a name, so you kind of got it. And it was, there was a lot of speculation about how it would be because I suppose that is when human beings are most like computers, probably, when they play chess. You know, I mean, I think Leapfrog, we're still... <laughs> I'm fairly confident we're going we're gonna to win. But... Um, <laughs> Chess, we were, everyone was saying well, this is a real a battle like between man versus machine, but also like humanity versus machine. He didn't win, did he? The no, he lost. Won. Deep Blue won. And humanity's never recovered. Never. <laughs> it reminds me, I saw... I was in Cannon Hill Park in Birmingham and there was a big... It was called the Teddy Bear's Picnic and it was all bear-themed events. And a man boxed a bear in a boxing ring. A proper... <laughs> live bear and and a woman shouted don't let us down <laughs> <laughs> representing all human beings against against bears also that kind of implies that bears have been a boxing threat in the past yeah well the bear was quite a famous bear it used to do an advert on the telly for um, i think toilet roll oh, no. <laughs> it did yeah. an advert for toilet paper yeah, and does anyone remember I'm this? I'm assuming it took place in a wood. <laughs> Deep Blue, was, who was that um, designed by? Uh, was that specifically for um, chess playing abilities or was it used in a space race or what was its it was, history? It was a chess playing computer that IBM developed. So really IBM are promoting their own computer and as you say, there were two matches, 1996 and 1997, and both times Kasparov lost. OK. So, um, I, well, we've learnt a great deal tonight, I think, about all manner of things. Um, can I uh, say thanks to Professor Kate Williams, my guests Josie Long and Kevin Eldon, and thank you for listening and the rest, as they say. <laughs> 
is History was hosted by Frank Skinner with Professor Kate Williams. The guests were Josie Long and Kevin Eldon. The producers were Justin Pollard and Mark Augustine. This was an Avalon production for BBC Radio 4.